Chapter Twenty Three of the Pocket Measure by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Three: Measuring Responsibility. We must go home early tonight and give these people a chance to rest. This was what Mister Evans said in one form or another several times during the earlier part of the evening. Yet they lingered. Some absorbing topic of conversation would be immediately started by one of the circle, and the half-movement to separate would be forestalled. The Evanses were so glad to get their neighbors back again, and the neighbors, on their part, were so gratefully glad to be back again, that it was hard to separate. Even when Mr. Evans actually arose and said, "'Now really, Eva, we ought to go.' Mrs. Spafford said, just at that moment, "'Oh, Mrs. Evans, I wanted to ask you about Jenny. Do you think she—' And here the ladies' chairs were drawn closer, and the tones became confidential. The two husbands looked at each other and smiled. Then something in Mr. Evans's face, a sort of wistful yet hesitating look, sent a telegraphic dispatch to the other gentleman's heart. They had been thrown much together, these two, during the weeks that had intervened since Mr. Spafford's return to the city, and he had tried to be a faithful witness for his lord. So now he laid a detaining hand on the other's arm, and said in a voice of grave yet winning inquiry, "'My friend, is the great question settled yet?' Slowly and gravely Mr. Evans shook his head yet he seemed relieved and grateful that the subject had been started, and Mr. Spafford, watching his face for a moment, ventured further. I wish I knew just what is in the way. It has sometimes seemed to me, when I have been talking with you, as though you came up to a sort of stone wall which prevented you from taking another step. I wish I could know whether there is really an obstacle, and what it is." Perhaps we could together lift it out of the way. There is an obstacle, declared Mr. Evans, with an emphatic voice, after just a moment of irresolution. You are right. I cannot take another step until an intervening question is decided. Meantime, Mrs. Spafford, who was deeply interested in the inquiries she was making, became suddenly aware that her friend's interest was elsewhere. The truth is, Mrs. Evans was in such a state of constant longing for her husband's decision on the momentous question, was so on the alert to have him influenced in the right direction, that the moment the question was presented, her heart seemed to take warning, and be ready to stand sentinel. Mrs. Spafford, following the direction of her eyes, saw her giving eager, almost painful heed to the conversation which was taking place over by the window. Therefore, both of the ladies heard Mr. Spafford's next question. Is it anything that you are willing to tell me about? The fact is, said Mr. Evans, after another thoughtful pause, I can't make a profession of one thing and live a life that is at variance with it. In other words, I can't continue in my present business and be a Christian. At least, it doesn't seem to me that I can. I have always regarded the temperance question as one of the most important with which a Christian had to do, and I have always been secretly ashamed of the church because it did not take strong enough ground on this subject. 
Now, with my eyes as wide open as that, could I support my family from such a business, and at the same time claim myself as belonging to a master, who, I believe, hates the whole thing? But, Mr. Evans, you have nothing to do with the selling of liquor. It was his wife's horrified voice that asked this question, or rather made this distressed statement. It was the first intimation her husband had that the conversation had become general. He turned toward her with a somewhat sad smile. The keener brain of the man had, years before, seen through the delicate film of respectability with which others had enshrouded his business, and which had satisfied his wife. No, dear, but I buy it. That is, I pay for it, large sums of money every month, and make out bills of it, and deal with it in a dozen different ways. In fact, I have to do with the management of liquors as much as though I owned the entire establishment. Well, but, urged his wife, distress still apparent in her voice, you are only the clerk, you have no responsibility in the matter, it isn't your liquor, and you get no money for its sale, the responsibility of selling it doesn't belong to you. My dear wife, I might say the same thing if I were a clerk for Old Green, down here at the corner, and sold bad whiskey at so much a glass. You see, there is no such thing as shirking responsibilities in that way. I get my living from the sale of that which I believe to be a curse to the world, and whether I pour it into a glass, or count the money that is paid for it, seems to me to have very little to do with the real question." to be sure i can say if i don't receive the salary somebody else will and i might as well have it as anybody but the trouble with that argument is it proves too much a thief can use it there are always people enough to steal and i might as well share the plunder as any one how would you like that reasoning eva she smiled a wan sort of smile she understood the illustration and could not help seeing that the cases were sufficiently analogous to have it fit. Still, the idea was new to her, and hateful. "'I have never thought of such a thing,' she said, drawing a long breath. "'If it has seemed so to you, Dane, I wonder that you have borne it so long.' "'Yes,' he said, his face darkening, and he arose and began to walk up and down the room." That is just the difference between Spafford here and myself. He sees things and does them, and I see things and shirk them, and one can't be a Christian and do that last, in my opinion. So there I am. Don't you see, Spafford, I haven't a chance to take any steps? No, said Mr. Spafford emphatically. I don't see anything of the kind. If your reasoning is clear, you have a very serious step to take. Aye, that's the trouble, too serious. You see, it is all we have to depend upon, my wife and I. For a long time, I settled down upon the thought that it was a man's duty to take care of his family, and that I must not give up my situation until I secured another, and I have been secretly at work for months trying to find an opening." but there isn't any such thing as an opening. Apparently I am shut up to this one place. I haven't heard of even a possible chance for something in the future. 
I told myself that it was plainly my duty to hold on here, that it was equally my duty not to make a public profession while I was so engaged, and I've been trying, if ever a man did, to live two lives. I have tried hard to act like a Christian and feel like a Christian, and I can't do it. I feel more like a hypocrite than anything else. Still, it wasn't very plain to me what I ought to do until your trial hour came, Spafford, and with less to live on than I have and more at stake, you swung off on what looked like a very little matter, too. I heard a member of the same church as yourself criticize you sharply, classing your line of conduct as belonging to those who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, though he omitted to say what camel you had swallowed. Well, it opened my eyes, as soon at least as I would allow myself to open them. I called you a fool for a few days, but I knew all the time that you were simply an honest man with a live conscience. By the same sign, I knew that I wasn't. I see plainly now what I ought to do, but I haven't advanced an inch. I shrink from it as hard as ever. How can I deliberately relinquish our only chance of support and fold my hands? Spafford, do you see how I can do it? Now tell me, what would you advise? What does Mrs. Evans advise? It was Mr. Spafford who asked this question, whereupon her husband turned toward her a distressed look. It was evident that he did not expect his wife to understand or appreciate the awful straits to which he was reduced. She was a temperance woman in a sweet and quiet way, but she had never been what her uncle had called a temperance fanatic, and the definitions of society had heretofore given her complete, unquestioning satisfaction. How could she be expected to see what the light of God's own spirit had made plain to his keener mind? It was evident that her husband shrank from the ordeal presented to him for his wife's sake. During these last two years she had grown peculiarly, inexpressibly dear to him. They had been years of rest in his home. What he had supposed was a quiet little spirit had suddenly, two years before, arisen and asserted its freedom from domestic thraldom. She would have no more of the so-called help that she had hitherto endured about her. She would be her own mistress and do her own work. Her husband had laughed sarcastically, and looked on moodily, but the resolute housekeeper had held steadily on her way. She spent long hours in the Spafford kitchen, concocting mysteries which blossomed into results on their own table. She steadily held her own, one evening, against first ridicule and then positive annoyance, until she literally made her husband say just what sum he thought they could safely spare for the week's household expenses. His reluctance to tell her, arising from the fact that he knew much better than she did how alarmingly small it was in comparison with what they had been using. But she received the figures meekly enough, and set about apportioning them after the fashion that she had learned from Mrs. Spafford, and neither then nor afterward did she call for a larger sum. On the contrary, she steadily saved from the week's allowance, until one evening she amazed her husband by producing enough to pay a certain bill, which had chafed his nerves and driven sleep from his pillow for hours together. It was not until after that event 
that Mr. Evans actually opened his eyes wide to see that a thorough domestic reform had been inaugurated in his home, and that the wheels were running smoothly. Since which time he had been sure of one thing, that his wife was a woman of rare wisdom and skill and tact as regarded the management of a home. Great comfort had they enjoyed in their home during these two years. A little box of a place it was still, but as pretty a home as one need care to see, and every night when he hastened to it, Dane Evans realized that the genius who presided within grew dearer. Yet by so much more did he want to shield her from outside winds. She had learned to use the means he brought to make a very restful Eden of the home. Could he expect her to think it would be either wise or right to withdraw all the visible means for sustaining it? Make beggars of themselves, indeed. It was hardly fair to appeal to her for advice, yet Mr. Spafford had done it. At the mention of her name, Mrs. Evans arose from her seat. Her eyes were bright, her cheeks were glowing. She went over to her husband, and clasping both her hands over his arm, in a fashion she had when they were alone, and she was very much in earnest, she spoke exactly as though she had forgotten, as indeed she had, that there were any others present. "'Oh, Dane, how is it possible that you can hesitate one moment? I have prayed and prayed, and cried before God, begging him to bring you to a decision. I knew he was calling you. I could not think what stood in your way. I am not wise about these matters, you know, Dane, and I never thought of this. I cannot tell you how glad, how very glad and grateful I am, that it is not my miserable inconsistent life as a Christian that was holding you back. I know you had a very high ideal, and I knew I fell so far short. But, Dane, don't, oh, I beg of you, don't for one moment, let the thought of how we shall live keep you from giving yourself to Christ. He will take care that we do not starve, unless he wants us to starve for his sake and I'm sure that would be no harder than many other things. We can't do just as he wishes, Dane, you and I, but don't let us for one moment go contrary to his plain directions. If he has told you that the way we get our money is wrong, don't let us have another cent of it. Long before these eager, impassioned sentences were concluded, Mr. Evans had put his arm around his wife and drawn her closely to him, and the tears were dropping from his eyes. Mr. Spafford, also, had drawn his handkerchief, and was clearing his throat in a suspicious manner. As for his wife, her eyes were too bright for tears. She had been confident that her quiet and gentle friend had depths of feeling and heights of self-renunciation that were not suspected even by her husband." It was just as well for him to discover what a power he had beside him. Mr. Spafford arose and went over to where the husband and wife stood. "'Swing off, Evans,' he said earnestly. "'There is no peace short of that. I have discovered, by my own experiences, that the Lord will have nothing to do with compromises. When he has made the right entirely plain to you, the manner in which you may be sustained while you are treading the road of his pointing out is, in a sense, not your concern. 
he will undertake it for you. Trust him. I don't know how to trust, said Mr. Evans tremulously. I would like to feel trustful, but I certainly don't. Faith is the gift of God, quoted Mrs. Spafford in clear, ringing voice. It was the first time she had spoken. Yes, said her husband. That is one of the heart troubles which may be taken to him, too. The question just now is, do you intend to accept him as your leader? Are you ready to resign your will to his, and walk in the paths of his pointing out, and no other? Evans, what you want is an effort of the will. You have been trying to do your own planning, to see your way perfectly clear, and when you had succeeded in arranging everything to your satisfaction, you were going to tell the Lord that you were willing now to serve him. I don't believe he would ever have opened a way for such service. What he wants is your absolute surrender into his hands. I don't believe I understand you, Spafford. I dare say I am dull, but these things are all new to me. Now I might be really anxious to trust my affairs in your hands, but if my brain would keep working over them, trying to plan, I hardly see how I would be to blame, or how I could stop planning. I might resolve with all my might to stop, but the planning, I fancy, would still go on, almost in spite of me. Let me take your own illustration, my friend, and complete it. Suppose me to be so powerful a friend, that your judgment justified you in placing all your affairs in my hands, and your mind said, I will follow his directions in every particular. When any plan is suggested to my mind, I will take it at once to him, and whether his ways seem to me wise or not, I will follow them. If that was the deliberate language of your heart, it would really, in one sense, make little difference how much planning you did. Don't you see, my friend, that your next step is to surrender your independence to the Lord, willing yourself to obey him? Then there was silence in that little parlor, while one of those deliberations was taking place, such as the angels watch over with intense interest. What would the issue be? Mr. Spafford silently pushed a chair forward, and Mr. Evans, rousing for a moment, placed his wife in it, drew a seat beside her, and sat down. His face shaded by his hand, himself evidently in deep and troubled thought. There is one thing, said Mr. Spafford, suddenly breaking the silence, that perhaps is hardly necessary to say, yet some way I feel like saying it. I know, by experience you remember, that the way looks somewhat dark when there is no apparent means of support. Yet no one certainly knows better than I do, than we do, how promptly friends start up for hours of need. So I wanted to remind you that so long as Callie and I have a home and bread, we are more than ready to share them with you, until such time as your way shines clear. Mr. Evans reached forth his hand and grasped that of his friend. God bless you, he said. You are a true friend to me. I realize the actual disgrace I am to God for being unable to trust my affairs with him. I don't feel an atom of trust. The way looks as dark as Egypt. But I plainly see what would be the right thing to do. And as you say, I can control my will if I cannot my heart. 
and I will obey his directions, so far as I can see them, from this time forth. So help me God. Amen, said Mrs. Spafford. Let us pray. In a moment the little circle were on their knees, and the parlor, so often consecrated by the voice of prayer, was filled once more with words of consecration and thanksgiving. Directly Mr. Spafford's voice ceased, his wife took up the petition, and then Mrs. Evans, her voice so tremulous from pent-up emotion that she could hardly syllable the words, breathed forth the hopes and desires and longings of her heart. Then, a moment of silence, and a new voice was chronicled in heaven as among the list of those of whom it was said, Behold, he prayeth. As they arose from their knees, Mr. Evans held out his hand again to his friend. It is very strange, he said, smiling. There is certainly nothing in my outward circumstances in any wise altered from what it was twenty minutes ago, but the heaviness of spirit is gone. I feel now as though I could trust him not only, but as though it were a pleasure to do so. May he bless you for what you have been to me. I don't believe I should ever have seen my duty in this matter, but for the step which you took in the dark, for the honor of his name. And now we really must say good night, or rather good morning. I don't feel as though there were any night. End of chapter 23